The Squaresoft Golden Age, what it's like working with Sakaguchi-san, remembering the humanity behind game development and the intensely personal story of Final Fantasy Spirits Within. I'm the Well-Read Mage and this is MageCast. Get ready for all the greeblies because we're sitting down with art director and artist James H. Darji. James is an artist and designer who has worked on franchises like Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, Matrix, Metroid Prime, and also one of the artists who helped put together Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. Now, I know that's a film with, uh, let's say, some reputation, but I think what you'll find in this episode is that we really focused in on the conversation, on the memories, on the humanity, the people that worked on this film and the vision that was in this film. So regardless of what you think about the movie, I hope that you get something out of this episode. MageCast is the podcast for conversationalists about conversation in a world where we've already stopped listening to each other. And hey, with the kind of insight that James brings to the table, you might just learn something. All right, this is another episode of MageCast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited for tonight's episode. Tonight I'm sitting down with somebody who has had a hand in some uh, pretty dang iconic franchises in gaming. Uh, please welcome James H. Darji. How are you, sir? Doing well, thanks, Moses. Happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, thanks very much for agreeing uh, to pop in. And it was kind of on a whim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I so I only just met you on Twitter, obviously. Sure. Just briefly when we were talking about Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. Um, and you were discussing just a little bit of um, kind of your experience working on that movie. And it, I went to bed that night. I woke up the next morning. I was like, what the heck am I doing? Why don't I just ask this guy if he wants to talk about it on my podcast? And I was delighted when I asked you that you said yes. So I really appreciate that. I think we're going to have a great conversation tonight. Is this a podcast? This is a is podcast. Is that what's happening? Oh, my God. <laughs> this is – you are not dreaming. This is a podcast. Um, so it's very important also to remember that your full name is James H. Darcy. Uh. Well, you know, yeah, the, I mean, I remember that constantly, I'm reminded, <laughs> but the re I used the initial, I know it sounds pretentious, but uh, for a while in the 90s, I guess, when the internet wasn't quite as, as uh, precise and, and, you know, factually correct as it is these days, hmm. I'm, 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 I'm winking. Right, I can um, feel that wink. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I was confused with another James Dargy, who I believe was some kind of nuclear proliferation scientist or somebody who was, you know, uh, you know, for nuclear power and, 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 uh, hacker groups would attack my website full of final fantasy art and game art and, you know, put up skulls and say I was polluting the planet and how dare I, you know, try to be pro nuclear. Um, so it happened a few times. It hasn't happened since I've started using the H. So wow. we'll, we'll see if, uh, see if anybody out there is listening, maybe I'll, you know, now piqued the interest of hackers all over the world. <laughs> that is quite a story. <laughs> and that explains the H. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so you are on your site. It says that you are a an art and creative director. That's correct. Currently an art director. Um, sometimes both. Okay. What's that sort of look like to – so, I mean, I would consider myself an artist in these various forms, but I've never mm -hmm. really done that professionally. So what does that kind of look like for you? Uh, making lemonade every day. <laughs> every day. So you you just make drinks. That's <laughs> well, no, you know, you get handed lemons. Everybody has a, a, a super idea of what they want to do, and then you find out all of your technical 
constraints and time constraints and uh, X, Y, Z, all these things happen, you, you, you make the best out of it. Um, mm. That's what that's what uh, any director level position does. You're just trying to trying to make magic out of out of the uh, the bare minimum, and that's the best. I find I always find that once you know your margins, mm-hmm. that's the most creative time anyway. If you could just do blue sky all the time and there's no restraints, um, it's not as interesting. You you don't come up with as interesting answers to things. But so I, I look at it as a positive thing always. Wow, that got deep real fast. Oh, this is going to oh. be great. <laughs> uh, so it, you've got your resume here on your site. This is not a job interview, obviously, but uh, you've got your, your resume on the site. You've been doing art for, for quite a while. De- decades. And is that – I mean, did you did – you, like, was your first job an art job? You mean like first professional job? Or, yeah. I mean my first job was like paper route. I don't know if you want to go back that Oh, no, far. we're not that far. <laughs> I was really good at it, though. Um, I mean, my first professional job in the game industry, I, uh, I'm an industrial designer by trade. So, okay. And I got into that because I knew that a lot of guys at ILM at the time, you know, with uh, movie miniatures and, you know, making models for, for all of their amazing Star Wars movies and stuff, I knew they, a lot of them had industrial design backgrounds. So I'm like, well, I'll just do that. And, uh, this is after four years of law school, by the way, oh. so we don't need to get into that one. No, that was, no, no, that, no. I was a misguided idiot for, for a while. Uh, but then I got into industrial design and um, with a kind of a, like, a, like a focus, a specialization in, in miniatures. So I was doing a lot of cars, as you do in industrial design. So I was building them in various scales. And um, the school, I went, I went to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, which was really great. Pittsburgh's a great city. Mm. And, uh, you know... We got to we got to do a lot of cool things. Like in one class, you could um, you know come up with like a script, kind of an idea for a for a movie, and then make little props to support it, and drawings and drafts, you know, draft your plans and everything. Um, and then we got into computers, which at the time was just I think we just had 3D Studio, and um, Jurassic Park was just out around mm. that time, and you know. I couldn't make it look, look as good as Jurassic Park. I had no idea what was going on there. I'm like, hey, where, where's the photo reel button that I hit to render this <laughs> stuff? So I had very little computer knowledge, but I got I got you know a job offer from Take Two Interactive, uh, which I, you know they're still around. They're still making games. They're they're out there. But uh, that was my first professional job right out of school as a like a model maker. You know, back back then we did everything. It wasn't like you specialized. If you could model and texture and animate, you did all that. Wow. So yeah, right, right out of school, I was like, well, you know, I want to make, I want to make real, you know, physical models, but you know, I know a little bit of computer stuff that could be fun for a while, and you know, been doing that ever since. Wow. <laughs> what a ride! Uh, right above your Take Two Interactive uh, section here on your resume, it says that you worked for Square USA in yeah. Honolulu, Hawaii, which. I appreciate because it, it was actually the city I was born in. Um, oh, nice. My daughter and, as well. Oh, really? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I looked at the dates that you were there, um, and we were actually on the same island at the same time in oh, that's human awesome. history. That's, uh, it, was, it was predestined that we were supposed to be on this show. Let's just say that. I guess so. That's yeah. great. When, when did you leave? Uh, I left around 2002 mm-hmm. uh, and moved to, as they say out there, the mainland. The mainland. The yeah. mainland. Now I'm enjoying the sun in in California, 
So, uh, but so you were at Square USA. You were a lead CG artist, and that's where you worked on Final Fantasy: The Spirits Within. Right. Um, and so, you know, we're going to spend a lot of our time kind of digging into that, dredging up all those amazing memories that I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, but before we get there, uh, on your website, it says that you've worked on, uh, my goodness, quite a few very iconic um, franchises and games as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, uh, Metroid Prime. It says here The Matrix. So uh, Not the game, though. Not, that, was the, that was the movie. Right, the Matrix uh, Reloaded Revolutions, right? Correct, yep. Yeah. So without kind of getting into the Final Fantasy stuff then, maybe you could give us a little bit of James working on some of these, the Call of Duty stuff, the Metroid Prime stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, well, Metroid Prime was right after Final Fantasy because I'd done a lot of the... I won't, I won't go too deep into what I did on Final Fantasy, but there was a lot of like hologram work and you know like motion graphics stuff like AR um, heads-up displays and things. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of that that style influenced Metroid Prime. They really wanted that same same kind of look. Mm. Um, but yeah, when I started at Retro Studios, um, it was right after Final Fantasy, and um, it wasn't even Metroid yet when I started. It was a whole different game. It was called Metaphors. Really? I didn't know that. It yeah, started re- as a different game. Yeah, Retro was a very... It was a hotbed at the time. Like we had f- at least four titles, and a fifth one that was kind of always on the edge of going into production. But we were doing—I think it was called Rune Blade. We had an NFL football title. This is all for the GameCube mm-hmm. before it was known as the GameCube. We were calling it the Dolphin at the time. Ah, uh, yeah, it was, it was the yeah. code name. Um, and then there was Metaphors and Car Combat, which was awesome. Car Combat. Yeah, that you know that that could have been its name. That was its that was its you know working title, but it could have just shipped with that name. I mean, it is what it is, right? Like, I think you get it. You're basically post-apocalyptic Mad Max driving around in cool cars, blowing each other up. So nice. it was a multi. It would have been the only multiplayer game on the GameCube at launch. Wow! And it just seemed like a no-brainer. Yeah. For that one, but you know, as as game development goes, the most unexpected things can happen at the strangest times. Mm. So, so, yeah, uh, Metaphors became Metroid. It was a very similar kind of game, Metaphors. The idea, like, you're this female heroine, but it was a, a, uh, a third-person game. And then when we got Metroid, um, everybody in the... Th- well, you know, I, I was just a modeler. I was just a senior modeler, designer, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know about the upper workings of the studio, but... Our bosses were like, "Hey, we're gonna make third-person Metroid 3D because that's it's just like Metaphors, obviously." So we made the whole prototype um, to show Nintendo in about three months. Wow! And when they saw it, they're like, "What is this? We wanted first-person." You know, like it was a kind of a shock to them. Hmm. Because um, I think most people think of Metroid as a you know side-scroller, third-person kind of kind of game. Right. And it just seemed a little. A little strange to us to make first person one but that's what nintendo wanted and that's what we ended up making was but, it yeah. kind of hard to make that adjustment oh yeah yeah i mean you have to change a lot yeah uh, i would you, think so <laughs> yeah like most most everything like all of the proportions that you make for first person are very different than third person ah. um you know it has to kind of suit the fov of the camera and the environment the, the, your whole experience as a player 
is is dependent on that making sense for that particular mode. I see. Um, so even switching, like when we switch from first person Metroid to third person, you know, ball mode, then you know you're going to very specific portions of the area that that are built to accommodate that view. Um, but yeah, it was it was a it was a fun time for sure. It was you know I was a big fan of Metroid, so when they announced it, I'm like, heck yeah, like let's. Yeah, let's make some Metroid. Games. I know who wouldn't want to work on a Metroid. That sounds amazing. Uh, so then, beyond Metroid, then you you also worked on the Matrix. Uh, that was in two thousand two, two thousand three. Looks like, if you say so. <laughs> I don't remember. I know right? you're like I <laughs> something like that. The dates. I got it pulled up here for you. I got you back, buddy. Okay. Uh, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix yeah. Revolutions. Yeah, that was awesome. That was one of the best run productions I've ever been on in any capacity it was just it was so efficient and just everybody was so great on that production super helpful so many talented folks um you just couldn't you couldn't help but do good work you know everybody was everybody was just there to support each other and it was a very small cg crew like so i worked at esc entertainment out of alameda in northern california Mm -hmm. and we were on the old naval base which is if you've ever watched mythbusters that's where that's where they shot Mythbusters most of the time. Wow. Yeah. So you know, like Adam Savage, he worked. He was on the practical side of stuff, and we were in the digital side. But that only meant like a stroll across the the bay, the base to to the to the hangars that had the practical models, and you know, a lot of times we we could take reference shots of the models they were building if we were doing like digital extensions or CG recreations. Because um, if you if you built them exactly as the blueprints were, the C, you know the computer side of things, our team could make them precise to the blueprint because that's the nature of computers. Mm-hmm. The guys in the model shop, they were making allowances for time and and you oh. know just even materials, right? Like to to make things um, work for what the shot needed. So whenever we'd get plates back that didn't quite line up with what we were making, we're like, oh, they, you know, the model shop has has had to improvise and and compensate. For various reasons, so it was really fortuitous to be on the same spot that we didn't have to send anything out to LA and wait for, you know, mail to come back or even you know even somebody to take photos and email them to us or something. So we could just run across the base and take our own photos and things. So we were pretty close, you know, close together with practical and digital. But there was only like man, what like seven of us on the digital side, and that was like environments, characters weapons uh, wow. brian freisinger was uh our lead on, on that effort and it you know looking back on it it's just a ton of work um but we you know we had we had support from other studios as mm-hmm. well you know sony um helped out uh Tippet studios was making shots wow I, that's a small team yeah but you know i mean these other studios were compensating a lot but yeah. everything everything kind of filtered through us to a degree like so I was the hovercraft lead at a certain point and was doing all the, like the Nebuchadnezzar and the Mjolnir and wow. uh, the Ganesha. So like any, any we had a, our concept um, lead, George Hall, would make these amazing hovercraft concepts. And the Wachowskis would always emphasize like World War II reference for everything. Uh, they wanted everything to look very, you know, mechanical and, and heavy and, you know, handmade kind of stuff. So we, we did a, did tons of research on World War II tanks and technology of the time wow. to build all the hovercraft, and that was that was pretty awesome. 
Yeah, that that research aspect sounds really enjoyable to me. You're kind of getting all those frames of reference for what you're designing. Oh, totally. And I mean, I could talk about all of the all the inspiration for the the hovercraft and stuff um, all day for sure. But it, it was funny because my next job after that was working for EA on Medal of Honor, mm-hmm. which was World War II. So I already had like this huge <laughs> knowledge base of, of World War II going into the. When, when I look back on the different jobs that I've had, there's always a through line that kind of connects one job to the next. You don't you don't always see it. Uh, going forward but looking back you're like oh that was obvious wow yeah that does kind of work out and as i was looking through this i was like this kind of seems to like build in a certain i don't know if you could say direction but uh having a line run through it that i think that's an accurate way to explain it um and then uh to kind of cap off kind of this section of the show uh you also worked on call of duty as well was there kind of a range so it's i mean you know you got support and compensation from these other studios but you just described yourself working on a smaller team. Did you find yourself working on a bigger team with Call of Duty? Yeah, I mean, our, our internal team was, was you know, much bigger than, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think of it that way, but yeah, much bigger than, than what the Matrix had. But, you know, EA as well, right? Like, like AAA titles, usually you have quite a beefy internal team to manage mm-hmm. and, you know, to benefit from. Uh, and then you have a bunch of outsourced studios too, because rarely does one studio do it all anymore. And uh, yeah, I mean, going from a few guys here and there to like a full, you know, VFX team, a full animation team, uh, you know, full environment modeling team, a full weapon modeling team. There's a lot of specializations, not to mention engineering and all the, you know, the technical uh, work that goes into the behind the scenes of games. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a big, and there's a lot of really awesome creative, you know, producers and creative directors. And um, my art director, I was uh, I was an associate art director. I actually started as a lighting director on Call of Duty, and got transitioned pretty quickly into an associate AD role. And then I was doing a lot of art direction on the multiplayer. So I'd work on single player as well as multiplayer. Hmm. Um, I came on right as uh, World at War was was shipping and um got to work on the nazi zombie stuff which that was always you know nobody knew how popular that was going to be no that's that's a that's a whole story in itself that other people should probably tell um more accurately but uh there's an official story and then there's you know then there all official stories have elements of truth but the bottom line was that every that was kind of a labor of love from from a few select team members that saw like an animation that looked kind of i don't know if it was a broken animation but it was an animation that just looked like kind of like a zombie running frantically and and uh we'd use it for like target practice and certain little <laughs> you know like like gym scenarios where we test weapons and stuff and then somebody made like a ray gun to shoot it and then somebody made a little environment to hole up the, the you know portals and doorways to to hold them off and it just evolved into like the zombie experience that you'd notice that like if you're an astute developer and your team members are saying like hey if i power through my work today can i work on that nazi thing and that zombie thing (laughs) 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 like at at nine o'clock tonight and you're like wow yeah i guess i mean that sounds cool wow Um, well i guess it's that labor of love aspect maybe that resonated with a lot of people when i talk about the history of like call of duty 
I mean, I've never played too much Call of Duty, but even I know that. I mean, that's that was a fan favorite. Oh yeah. Well, it, you know, it's like, like I, don't, I don't know what's the best way to say this. Call of Duty, super popular, super fun, like one of the best tuned first-person shooters ever. And that, you know, I worked on Medal of Honor before that, and we thought we were doing a good job. We didn't, we didn't know. It's funny because, like, not to not to rat hole too much on this, but every studio I've been at, you're like, hey, we're doing a great job, and you pat yourself on the back because you have a process and you're following it and you're getting results and feedback. And you're like, hey, this is going the right way. And then you work on something like Call of Duty, and you're like, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, ah, this is very different. Um, and some studios, you know, can benefit from that if you know if they're willing to to listen. And um, others, uh, you know, choose their own way and to, to various degrees of success. It's not always it's not always easy, but mm-hmm. I mean, games are not easy in any capacity, but. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was fun being able to work. I love the period stuff, so like working on World War II. And it's funny because Medal of Honor could have had their own zombie version if they had been listening. I had been working on Medal of Honor like longer than World War II actually lasted at a certain point. Oh wow, that's and, interesting. And a, and, a, <laughs> and a bunch of other other developers too were like, "God, we're just you know another World War II." Uh, game I had done uh, my first one was Pacific Assault, and I did uh, Rising Sun, and a little bit of Spearhead, which was an expansion pack, and then Airborne. Um, you know, the, I think European Assault as well, and it's just like it's super awesome. I loved, I actually really liked that that period of, of history, and uh, probably one of the best things was that we got to interview a lot of the the veterans. Oh, that's awesome! At the time and the, their stories are so much more interesting than anything we can make up. Yeah, um, they're great. They, yeah, you uh, know, we, we should just literally tell some of their stories, and it's like, yeah, that's that's much more harrowing. Yeah. Um, now I had a friend who uh, um, pitched me kind of a podcast idea. Um, this was this was a while ago, and unfortunately, he just got too busy to pursue it, but. Yeah. It was this idea for a podcast to just interview um, older folks that have these great mm. stories um, that, you know, those stories might be lost if they don't tell them and get them down oh, yeah. on recording. Um, my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago, and she would tell me stories about Pearl Harbor. Um, she was in Hawaii when, when that happened, and she was a oh, little wow. girl. And, um, you know, I regret not getting them down on recording now. Um, so I think that's just amazing, amazing to, uh, to interview, you know, those veterans that were there. Yeah, man. I mean, that was one of the best, one of the best parts of the game, of, you know, that, that whole development of that game, well, all of those games, like we, we worked d- directly with the Congressional Medal of Honor Society. Wow. So we had, we had access to a lot of documents and research. And, um, I was actually part of a small, like five of us went, um, we took our historical advisor for Medal of Honor Airborne. And we went um, to all the to all the popular sites of the European theater for like a, a research trip. And we took like you know eleven thousand photos and visited Normandy and you know hit uh, the beaches of mm. where all the you know major events happened. And uh, just to have that firsthand experience before you go into full development on a game is uh, is quite a thing. You know, it, it really gives you a sense of the importance and and just that connection, that tangible connection to it all. We we found uh, we found foxholes that hadn't been 
like disturbed since the war. Wow. In, in, in like farmers' backyards, they have these hedgerows all over the place. And there's a lot, a lot of people are told not to go exploring. Like, um, it's, you know, sad. It's a sad turn of events that, uh, to this day, every once in a while, somebody finds unexploded ordnance in a pasture mm. and, you know, it's still volatile, so it can, it can end poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of dangerous still just cause there's so much, so much stuff, uh, wow. going on over there. Wow. But yeah, we were, so we were working on just to, just to close that loop for a quick second, mm-hmm. we were working on world war two for all this time. And a lot of us were thinking like, Hey, what if we did like experimental Nazi weapons or what if we did like, you know, some kind of fictional aspect and, and it always came back to the historical accuracy of the project. Uh-huh. You know, they were very afraid to, to try anything like that. And they're probably right for the most part. Mm-hmm. I think Medal of Honor has a certain level of integrity it needs to maintain. Um, but we had also pitched this idea of like, hey, what if you fell asleep, right? You play through a level and then you, you bivouac for the night. Maybe you fall asleep and you have a nightmare and all the dead soldiers from that day's battle rise up. And it's just a wave defense. Like you just mow them down, and and then you wake up. Like you'll eventually lose. You can't play forever. It'll just get beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And then you wake up the next day and continue the the campaign, which is historically accurate. But anybody can have a nightmare. I mean, uh, that was the pitch. Like we could just do this as a fun thing, and and try it uh, without without violating like the supernatural laws of World War Two. And um, but yeah, it, it, it's the same parallel of Call of Duty not wanting to do it really initially either is because when, when you have a successful title, you don't want to take too many chances to break the formula. Right. So to, to suggest we're going to have these undead zombies <laughs> in the game isn't an easy sell. Yeah. When you have the most popular franchise on the planet, they're like, why, why do I want to do this? Right. That's why it's yeah. like, you don't, they might've been thinking we're not jumping the shark here. Right, uh, you could be your own worst enemy at times if if you're popular enough. Yeah, it could, uh, it could be hard, hard to know when to to try something outside the box. That's true. Well, maybe a missed opportunity for Medal of Honor, but they stuck to their guns, and I think that's admirable. Totally. Yeah. No, it was, you know, never say it was a bad idea, but game development, I think you you have opportunities to try things mm-hmm. that astute studios and teams would would kind of want to do a little bit more of that kind of. Uh, Rapid iteration, rapid experimentation. Mm-hmm. I think everybody benefits from that. At least you, you kind of put it to rest. You either know, hey, that could be cool. Maybe we'll use it yeah. somewhere else. Or, oh, that was awful. Let's never do that again. Mm. <laughs> so earlier you'd mentioned that uh, you considered you know, Call of Duty to be very finely tuned. Do you have kind of the opportunity or the impetus to um, play the all of these games that you've participated in the development of? Of course. I mean, when you develop it, it's not quite the same as film. Like, I, I rarely see the movies I've worked on in the theater. Oh, okay. Because we, we see them so much. Yeah. <laughs> and usually without soundtrack and, and sound design, which is a that's a, that's a huge disservice. But mm. uh, by the time it's out in the theater, you're like, oh, God. <laughs> I, remember when I, I remember when I first saw the first trailer for Spirits Within in the theater. It was attached to another movie. I forget which one. And and I was like, oh, yeah, this is a trailer. And like 30 seconds into the trailer, I'm like, that was like two years of my life. Wow. Like, that just happened in that span of 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> it took to make all that. But, uh, yeah, the game's different, right? Like, you have to play the game. Um, you know, good, a good development studio has a, has a cadence that you're playing often enough to make 
the right kind of course correction and, and pivots to tune everything, right? You, mm. you have to tune player speed and how the weapons work and, you know, what, what you're visually, if it's a narrative in the single player campaign, if that narrative is being told properly, um, multiplayer is the lifeblood of any franchise. So that's where we do a lot of, you know, play testing usually with like at least four levels at a time, at least that I was art directing. Um, and you know, you're, you're play testing one of those every day, having a group feedback with the game designers, um, trying to see what went really well, what needs to be tuned, what, you know, we might have to take away some geo or move a building or something, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Make the best plans and your top downs. And that's what I mean when I say making lemonade. It's kind of like, here's my grand scheme. And then you start whittling it down to like what actually is needed and what works best. Mm. Um, And that's essential, right? Like, uh, to be honest, I've worked at places that don't do that. Like they have a, like a very firm vision of what a what the experience should be and kind of turn a blind eye to feedback and, and that, and that can kill it, you know? Yeah. Well, that you have to, makes it, you have to be open to it. Yeah. Feedback is a gift, whether it's positive or negative. And I think it's, you just do yourself a disservice if you don't listen hmm. to, to your audience. Right. I mean, that's, that's wise. And uh, you've got your good games and you got your bad games. I'm somebody that believes in, uh, fundamentally believes in that there are some games that have you know these real areas of improvement and it's not just all preferences for color or mm. or music or things like that um and one of the quotes that you've got here on your site that i just thought was was wonderful is nothing ships with excuses so answer yeah. all the questions you can in the work you do every day yeah i think it's essential like here here's something like if anybody out there is thinking about being, you know, any kind of visual artist or anything, whether you're an art director or lead artist, you could be the you could be the lowest guy in the totem pole putting stuff in a in a level. Whatever you put in that level is going to tell a story. Hmm. You, there's no choice. Like it, it's going to tell a narrative. Is it going to be the narrative that you want to tell? I hope so, because you should be aware of it from day one. And if you don't have that set you're going to start doing things you're going to start populating levels and coming up with props and placement that you might be thinking about the game design and you might be thinking about um, how it plays which is super important Mm -hmm. art is a service to design in games always Mm. Um, if the art gets in the way of the game design that's bad shouldn't do that but it should complement it it should make it should make the experience intuitive and even like the best matte paintings right the best special effects you don't even think are special effects hmm. because they're so good they're just there that's how games should feel um so if if you start putting things in the level that make people stop and question it like what the heck is that yeah like, why is this happening or why is that there that's weird um that's starting to make them ask questions so you've started to add friction to the to the uh, equation here and you want to make it a very frictionless smooth experience where you can absorb what's happening and play through it in a way that makes you feel like you know the player feels like well i I understand all this i'm i'm good at i'm good at interpreting and i'm good at understanding you know and and it kind of rolls them forward Uh, now if you put in little easter eggs and things which i think are that you know essential as well we did a ton of that in call of duty Mm -hmm. um that's that's great for lore building that you don't have time maybe to you know to, to focus on for the game itself but having little tidbits and clues and visual 
you know, kind of hooks of things um, can can get the community talking and mm-hmm. can. And if you're if you're a wise developer, you listen to that chatter and you're like, oh, they really like this aspect, and maybe on the next DLC we can feed them a little bit more of that. Mm. Yeah. Wow, very. I mean, that's just fascinating. Honestly, we, I could just listen to you talk to, about development for the next hour. That would be fantastic. <laughs> um, maybe before we. Uh, move on and start to get into spirits within um did you want to mention anything that you're working on now oh um sure yeah i'm i'm right now i'm um art director at uh, first contact entertainment and they're they're famous for uh not only their amazing you know team which we all worked on call of duty at some point together um but uh they've they've also i think it it's been the two-year anniversary just just recently of uh, Firewall Zero Hour, which is a uh, you know the best uh, VR shooter on the market. Oh. Um, so yeah, PlayStation VR. Uh, you know, uh, it, we've done you know the the launch title of Firewall, and then six different like seasons of content with new characters and levels and trinkets, and it's a it's a super packed, um, dedicated team of guys just putting in all kinds of uh, amazing gameplay. Um, it just keeps coming. Wow. And we also just released a game called Solaris Off-World Combat, which is for you know the Oculus uh, system. You can get it for Oculus Quest, Quest 2, or Rift. Um, and that's a futuristic first-person shooter, 4v4. And it's smooth as butter, super frictionless. You can just jump in. You start off with a pistol. You can pick up all these other sci-fi weapons and just run around. I mean, you can, uh, can have a ton of fun in that game. It's, it's really good. Wow. And might I add highly stylish? It is. Yeah. So firewalls a lot more like call of duty, medal of honor kind of, kind of look right. Uh-huh. A bit more realistic and, um, you know, working in games is always challenging to keep your frame rate up. At least always on call of duty with 60 frames, 60 frames. VR is like double. You're, you're doing 90 plus. Um, on the Quest, which is the lower processor end of the, the Oculus systems, we're running at like 72, pretty solid, um, which is what your what the target is. I see. So you don't, yeah, your frame rate, you know, we really tuned it, so it's, it's a little bit more of a stylized game, but it's very, you know, sci-fi, very um, otherworldly looking. Um, but the idea is that you're playing a VR sport in the future, um, kind of like an extension of like if you imagine like a Blade Runner size universe, right? What is the off-world situation like? Well, this is the the number one sport in that in that universe that they play. Wow, yeah. So, folks, I mean, if you're listening, you've got VR. Uh, you need to check these out. These are pretty great. And let James know what you think about him too, because dude's on Twitter and he's friendly. You can talk to him; he doesn't bite. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I love to hear feedback. It's always good when when someone sends a message. Yeah. Well, uh. Oh, that was a delight talking about those things. Unfortunately, like I said, we can't talk about development uh, sort of in that, that broad spectrum um, for the rest of the show. But we'll zoom in here on our our subject. Uh, this is MageCast episode 54 entitled Highway to the Phantom Zone. And we are talking about Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, which was directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi. Released theatrically in 2001 by Square Pictures and Columbia Pictures. 
Um, so, uh, like I mentioned at the start of every Mage Cast, uh, these are all spoilers episodes. So if you're concerned about it, uh, what I told some people who were like, you know, I want to ask a question. I haven't seen the movie yet. I was like, just go get the movie. I mean, I found it on Amazon for like nine dollars. It's not hard to find this movie at all. Um, but this is the first time we're talking about a movie instead of a game on this podcast. And I wanted to give a special shout out to Coconut Wizard for letting me know there's a chunk of special features and extras on the DVD, uh, which I was able to hunt down. And uh, some of those, like the the commentaries and the, uh, the behind-the-scenes documentaries, that was a, a lot of fun to watch. And I learned quite a bit about the movie that I think did help me appreciate it more um, and kind of appreciate everything that went into that movie. Uh, and we'll get into that as we proceed here. Uh, but first off, we've got our Mage Facts section. Uh, so the first fact here that I've got is Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, was the first photorealistic computer animated feature film. I think you're right. Um, that was released in the U.S. about eight days before the launch of Final Fantasy X in Japan. Yes, which I found to be pretty shocking. Now, so somebody pointed out that factoid about Final Fantasy X. Uh, have you played Final Fantasy X? I know you kind of mentioned that you haven't spent too much time with the Final Fantasy games. No, I haven't. I, well, I, I know of ten. Okay. Like I know of all of them, right? Like I, I believe ten was still being completed in the same. We so for the production Square USA, we mm -hmm. had a few floors in, um, in a building that was right right by Honolulu Harbor by Aloha Tower. You must be familiar. Yes. With that yep. with that area, right? So we were we were Harbor Court was the name of the building. Um, and we had like three or four floors and two of those floors were dedicated to the film and the other two or two or three, I forget how many, but the other three or four floors were dedicated to Final Fantasy, the game. Oh, okay. I see. So, so we didn't really, we didn't really mix productions much. There was a few guys who, who did uh, work on both, uh, but we got to see each other's work in progress as we went along. And that was, that was my biggest exposure to it all really was seeing like a lot of the We'd go into the theater. We had these little demo theaters, and they'd show us some of the uh, cinematics that they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'd look a lot of, at the character design and um, stuff like that. But uh, and then, you know, whenever we had milestones on the film, we'd, we'd share that with them as well. Wow. Uh, looking at pictures here of uh, Aloha Tower and and that area, mm -hmm. I I spend a lot of time in that. Aloha Tower is super nostalgic for me. I never knew that the Square USA building was right there. That kind of blows yep. my mind. I was like, I was right there. <laughs> well, across the street, across the street from Aloha Tower, yeah. right? like the the Harbor Court building. Well, I yeah. could have swung in and said hi if I knew you back then. Yeah, that, sure. That would have been you never fantastic. Know. If I had a time <laughs> machine. Um, well, so anyway, so uh, somebody pointed out uh, this factoid about Final Fantasy X's um, launch with uh, being right next to Spirits Within, and that was Summerfelt R, uh, who said Final Fantasy X came out 17 days after Spirits Within was released in theaters. Uh, you must be talking about the North American release. And then mm -hmm. you kind of answered his question there. Did that title have any influence on the creative direction of the movie? Looking at Final Fantasy X, one of my favorite games, love that game, um, and, and Final Fantasy Spirits Within, they're very, very different and very distinct uh, flavors. Yeah. X has this wonderful um, sort of oceanic Polynesian... Uh, far East kind of flavor to it, whereas Spirits Within has this very uh, futuristic 
2001 a space odyssey kind of um, <gasps> wow <gasps> wow i i gonna drop that name i didn't I, I didn't prompt you to say that no okay that's probably now, the biggest compliment you could you could throw at me oh well that's one of, that's actually my favorite movie of all time okay mine too so oh. we, we may end the podcast now we've yeah. achieved everything that's needed no that's that's wonderful <laughs> man now i really wish i had a time machine <laughs> just chatted about 2001 oh, yeah. a space odyssey and make oh it totally fun. no that was a big influence on a lot of the work we did especially the graphics and the, like the layouts for stuff i mean we got a little greebly with some of our uh you know on-screen motion graphics and things but that that kind of uh just that that futuristic look i mean it's in the environments for sure you know yes and i i I don't know if I know the technical term greebly, but I think I know what you know. Oh. Sort of like that grungy. Well, greebly or greebles, as some people like to call it, but you know the preferred nomenclature is greeblies. Uh, it goes by many names. It, it's more of a modeling term. Oh, uh, I co- see. <laughs> co- coined back in the day of like um, the ILM guys when they were like, say, detailing a star destroyer model. You'd have these giant big surfaces of flat plastic, you know, styrene that they would have to detail. And all of those little bumps and bits and pieces from other model kits that they'd glue together, those are the Greeblies. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes more sense than what I said. But hey, we do it We do it in digital, too. Like, you, you amass a digital set of go-to Greeblies, you know, at least I do. And when I need to detail stuff, I have all these pipes and conduits and radiators and weird-looking, you know, gears and things that I'll, I'll use to throw around. I, I think the last, well, not the last one, but... The best uh, Disney Star Wars movie, Rogue One. They they had a similar approach to their to their modeling. Uh, they kind of approached it like like old school modelers would in practical terms. And they had they had digital kitbash sections for their greeblies to oh, to see. detail out all the digital models. Pretty cool. Man, don't get me started talking about Star no, Wars. I, that, yeah. was my, that was my fault. I, I, <laughs> I slipped. I slipped for a second. No, I was gonna say I wish I could have just peeked over your shoulder while you were doing all this stuff. Right <laughs> Uh, a similar sort of question from at Kai D'Antonio, uh, who said, just going to ask how close Spirits Within was to Final Fantasy X production-wise, animators, voice actors, etc. So was there any sharing of staff between the game and that f- and the film at that time? Or you, as you say, it sounded like you were just completely separate? Yeah, I mean, we, were, we weren't like coordinated in any way, but there were a few people, I think Christian Schur, one of our map painters, um, amazing amazing talent he did uh, a lot of a lot of the concepts for character design and environment design but he was also practical map painter mm-hmm. i think he he went back and forth between uh, the productions because you know he was just that good that they wanted him they both wanted him and they were able to work it out so that he could spend a little time on both um and then and, uh, apologies to anybody else on the team that did it um that's the only one that comes to mind it was right. so it wasn't super <laughs> obvious, you know. Like it didn't it didn't happen a lot, and even then, I don't think they liked. Um, it wasn't like they made a big deal out of it, you know. But uh, you know, they were trying to. They didn't want to. Each production obviously didn't want to harm the other, so it was it was a very respectful transition when it did happen. And and that makes a lot of sense. And also to be fair, I mean, that was twenty years ago. So <laughs> what? If, if you forgot, if you forgot, <laughs> you know somebody's name, I'm sure they're not going to be like, "Can't believe What's... James forgot me after twenty years." I'm trying to think. I don't know. If, yeah, I can think of a couple other candidates that may have been, but it's just uh, Christian's the only one that I know for sure did oh, this, and he's yeah. he, he's somebody that's uh, man. He's, he's just powerhouse of creativity. He's awesome. 
Awesome. Yeah, I, I did a slight bit of research on, you know, if there was any kind of overlap. And the one that popped out to me is uh, voice actor Matt McKenzie okay. uh, voiced a character in Final Fantasy X, uh, Sir Oren. Fantastic, just kind of that gruff, old cowboy kind of a voice. Mm. And then he also voiced uh, one of the military commanders in Spirits Within. So oh, nice. there was at least that that overlap there. See uh, that? But, I'm learning... I'm learning... Stuff that I didn't even know. There you go. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you have seen Spirits Within since then, right? So you say you didn't see it in the theaters. Have you seen it since? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, okay. I mean, uh, have I seen? Yes. I mean, of course I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I watched it, but okay, I it was you. probably it was yeah, it was probably like yeah, you know, it was a while. It's been a while, but it's yeah. on TV every once in a while, and yeah. then I'll, I'll watch it and I'll be like, oh wow. Yeah movies on you're like i did that like, i was wondering if you were like alan moore or something where like i don't i'd never see these movies i never have a like i don't have any kind of uh mission to not see anything just at certain right. points like it's just you've seen enough like after yeah. a game is released i don't usually play a lot of it um like your first couple weeks when it's in the wild especially if it's a live game it, you'd be a fool not to, right? You want to experience what everybody else does in the wild, right? You want to, you want to have that same, same kind of notes, right? Like, do we need to fix this or that? And especially if you have a, you know, a game that's going to be populating with, with more items to come, you want to hear how people are enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, you know, the film, like once it's once it's done and in the, in shift, you're pretty much out of it. Um, can't you can't do much? It's it's there. Right. All, all of the questions that you should have answered should be in the in the print but um you know so those those are just like you're you're full of it at that point usually yeah. oh that makes sense <laughs> i mean like, i'm full I'm of tired it all, of... all the time so <laughs> you're like i'm tired of dreaming in spirits within so and by the time it's out yeah like you're you're on another project usually anyway so you're thinking about that thing um you know you know you're not... i was working on medal of honor when when the reloaded came out and like i I don't need to see that. Yeah. But I, I mean, did. I mean, I eventually saw it, especially like, you know, you go with friends and stuff and they're, they have a good time going with, with you more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they're, yes. Yeah, so spirits within, did I see it? Of course. I can't remember the last time I saw it, but it was on TV a couple times recently. And I think it got like four stars and I'm like, wow, what revisionist thinking. Thanks. <laughs> it's now a four star movie. That's four out of five, not four out of 10 then. I'm hoping. I'm okay. Hopefully, so. <laughs> yeah. There's a difference there. All right. This next mage fact says: If Spirits Within puts you in mind of Mass Effect, you're thinking straight. Mass Effect 3's art director admitted that one of their inspirations was Final Fantasy Spirits Within. So, um, I've not played Mass Effect at all, but uh, mm-hmm. it's one of those games that's popular enough that you know I think most people kind of know what it looks like, uh, especially if you play a lot of games. Um, And this was something I was yesterday years old when I learned that Final Fantasy Spirits Within uh, influenced and inspired Mass Effect series. How does it feel, James, knowing that uh, that you inspired Mass Effect? Royalties deserved. No, it's flattering. I mean, I I didn't know about that till pretty recently, too. um, But I mean, you look at Mass Effect, right? It's an amazing looking game and um, it. Like, you never know, like, again, looking back on things, it's easy to connect the dots, but who would have thought, you know, back yeah. when we were making that movie, to, to even have a comparison to 2001 in any way is, uh, is a huge, um, 
compliment, but then to have an amazing franchise like Mass Effect, you know, pay a little tribute to Final Fantasy as well is is uh, is humbling for sure. Mm-hmm. It's a great game. It's a great series, and it looks good too. Yeah, yeah it definitely is. <laughs> so the, the movie um, was produced entirely in English. Um, the original script was written by uh, Sakaguchi-san, um, and it was titled Gaia. So um, one of the questions that we did get, uh, also from Summerfelt R, was uh, he asked, "What what was? I wonder what it was like working with Sakaguchi. Did you mm-hmm. did you have any interactions with Sakaguchi? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Oh, oh god. Well, you know, here's the thing. When I started, so oh boy, I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> Sounds like it was a lot of interactions uh, then. Oh my god! It was a lot. Well, not necessarily directly with Sakaguchi-san, but it was like I started. I was given a script. I, I, I assume everybody got the same script. It was epic. I still have it. it it's a. It's an. I have a copy of what the script we were going to make was, and it was epic. Like we had, uh, like basically like speeder bike, hover bike kind of chases through these canyons and. There was just a lot. There was a lot of stuff. I mean, even when you, we read the script, we're like, "Wow, we got to make all this! Like, this is, this is huge." And they had storyboard artists cranking this stuff out all the time. Um, that that alone could have been like an almost you know close to an animated feature. I mean, thousands. At, at a certain point, we had storyboards overflow, like stuff they couldn't store in the, in the flat files anymore, and it was in the kitchen and just stacked up. But so I got this. I got the script that was very you know. There was just so much going on. It was very cool. And, um, you know, Sakaguchi-san always had, uh, you know, he's a, he's a brilliant storyteller. He always had the sense of you know, just epic uh, universe building and all these characters and um, all the story going on. And he would, you know, he would stop in every once in a while to see what we were doing. Now, he had a translator to, you know, to speak English to me. But when I started, I had my own translator. I was the only non-Japanese speaking member of my team. I was on the texture, the lighting and texture team when I started. And I was the only one who didn't speak Japanese. So mm. I had like, to, you know, usually it was like two translators talking to each other whenever there was a, a conversation with Sakaguchi-san and myself. <laughs> Even wow. though he speaks English very well, I, I think it's like a, a respect thing or i'm not sure but they always speak through a translator um rather than try to speak you know to me directly in english um but not everybody was like that he was just very uh he was just very proper in that way Mm -hmm. um but yeah he was always i remember one time when i was i was working on some of the holograms in the movie and uh seshna-san was my supervisor we didn't really have an art director for a while that's that's a it's a weird thing to think mm. about, but uh, Sashtasam was our lighting director, and, and, and he was basically the art director uh, for a long time, like unofficially. Um, and so he and I were working on holograms because we were still trying to like figure out like what's the right, you know, what's the secret sauce for holograms for this movie, like the amount of motion graphics and the two D design and how it animates and how it looks. Mm. And then one day Sakaguchi san like just popped in. It was probably like nine o'clock at night. And he was just like, uh, wanted to see what was happening. And we showed him kind of where we were at. And I had just done a render, uh, luckily. And <laughs> we looked at it and, and he just kind of nodded his head and moved on. And I was like, oh, cool. That was, 
Yeah, I'm glad he liked it. And after he was kind of gone, Seshna-san was like, oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> I'm like, what, what do you mean? He's like, it's a good thing he liked it. I don't really know the full story there. I just know that he was like, it felt like he just avoided a car accident. Oh, wow. And I'm, and I'm like, well, I'm glad he liked it. Uh, it's hard to imagine that he would have like <laughs> flown into a rage or something on you. I don't know. Maybe we just would have been like, uh, he's out of here. Wow. Did not like. Um, but there's there's a lot of a lot of you know, small stories like that. I mean, Square was a great company to work for. I mean, just to even, everybody came from somewhere else. You know, nobody knew, nobody had a a home base, right? We all came from the mainland or from Europe or Japan. Nobody was from, we had one guy from Hawaii. I think he was the only guy that was from Hawaii. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) And uh, Hiroshi, yeah, he was like our one, he would tell us all about, you know, local things. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, everybody else was from you know somewhere else, so we all bonded really well as a as a team. Oh, that's and awesome. Basically, they they just picked the best talent from everywhere, you know. So we got you know get, like I said, guys like Christian um, from Europe and guys from you know just everywhere, and, and ladies too. I don't I don't mean I, I mean guys in a very general sense. Right. Um, uh, I I can jive with that. I grew up in Hawaii. <laughs> guys is just. <laughs> phrasing local kind yeah, yeah local kind oh uh, local kind i didn't know i was gonna get some pigeon on this episode you know uh exactly. my dad still talks like that we haven't lived there for like a decade he hasn't lived there for like more than that and he still goes hey how you doing I'm like, okay all right this is california tone it down uh so well you were talking about kind of throwing together these teams from you know the best talent that they could, they could find and I mean, yeah. I would want to say that, that that paid off. When I think of this era of Square, um, you know, the 90s through 2000s, early 2000s, that to me is really their golden age. Uh, they had, I think it was six Final Fantasy games, seven tactics, eight, nine, 10, 11. That was just in like half a decade, plus a movie, plus mm-hmm. all these other amazing games that people still love and know. Uh, creating new franchise like like Kingdom Hearts and things like that, yep. uh, they were just on a roll. Um, and you know, I don't want to say and now they're not doing a good job, but you know that starts to sound like the old man yelling at the cloud. But just back then, it was amazing that they were just factually able to release so much in such a small period of time. And it really seems like it was a really creative time to to work for them and help create. Well. It was. I mean, we. Were, I don't think we were. We were really aware of how much was was being produced at the time. You know, it all just seemed like, um, kind of like an overwhelming amount of work. No mm-hmm. matter no matter how we looked at it. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it was a it was a golden era for them. Absolutely. Yeah. I just wanted to say one thing about Sakaguchi-san is that it's a very like the whole story, really. Um, it's very personal. It's a very personal story. I don't want to go into like, um too many details about I don't I don't know if he shared as much with the public but to him it's a it it's um yeah it's a very personal story and it, and and I think I I would hope that it's something he could share details on at some point and but the whole spirits within is uh it's kind of in tune with a lot of you know eastern philosophy and mm-hmm. and, and the meaning of kind of what life means and you know, the movie doesn't necessarily explain it in that way, but much like 2001 Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. some of the best films are left to the viewer to kind of fill in the, the blanks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but if, if you look at it with those eyes and know that it's somebody's like personal spiritual journey, it's a different kind of movie. Yes. Sure. Uh, and that's, you know, that's fascinating. Um, I, I learned a little bit about that just watching some of the special features recently. Mm. Um, and I think we'll get to that once we touch on in interpretation. Cause one thing that I discovered was that, uh, Aki, the main character in the movie, um, shares the same name as, uh, Sakaguchi's mother, mm -hmm. um, which I didn't know. And I was like, Oh, well, that colors the entire. Yeah. That's part film. of it. That's um, part of, yeah, that's yeah. part of his, uh, that's part of the personal journey for sure. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get to that. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to pick your brain on, on some of the interpretations of the film. Um, so the final mage fact here is, although the movie performed well in Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea, Spirits Within didn't perform well overall at the worldwide box office with a budget of, these are approximations mm -hmm. that I found, sure. uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. $137 million and a final gross of $85 million. Dismantling plans apparently to feature Aki across a series of movies. Yep. Um, and so that was something that, that it was being bandied about was, you know, we, we want to yeah. kind of make this a series. Yeah. I mean, not, not necessarily, I mean, sure. If the movie was a success, a, a sequel would have been a no brainer, but mm -hmm. even if Aki herself, if she, the idea was that she would be treated like a, you know, a virtual actress or a real actress really. Mm -hmm. um, and that she could be, you know, Aki Ross as, Scarlett O'Hara and the, oh, the futuristic Gone with the Wind, uh, you know, okay. something like that, where she would she would appear in advertisements, you know, selling products, um, or or be you know a, a full on actress in a in a different role. I see. Uh, interesting thought, right? Uh, what's the? I'm drawing a blank, but this this question makes me think of it. There was an Al Pacino movie, um, where that that was the premise of the movie around that time, where. The, there was a there was like a digital actress, but it looked so photoreal that nobody knew it was digital. Um, and they actually came to Square to to talk to us about, you know, could we literally make a digital actress to you know act alongside Al Pacino? Uh, was that just... uh, Simone? Yeah, that sounds right. That okay, sounds right. I just yep. googled it. I was like, I think Good it's job. Some... I've never Mike, seen it. Mikey so... works too loud to Google it. No, but yeah. yeah. I think... <laughs> I think that was the, yeah that so around that time we got visited by uh, Jim Cameron came by because he was doing Avatar pre-production you know try, everybody was trying to figure out because a lot of our, our our work was cutting edge like you said um, you know it was a it was a different time right like uh, everything we did was was kind of homegrown you know we were working with Pixar a little bit with uh, with Render Man who wow. achieved some of that and. I know they eventually made Square made their own renderer separate from RenderMan, but it was all like a render a RenderMan foundation. It's called Kilauea, um, and you know, so everybody's very curious. Like, how do you do this? How do you do that? Like these days, there's there's a lot of same answers for you know for a lot of those questions. Mm. Um, but back then, you had to make everything. If you needed a cloth sim, nothing existed. You know, the, <laughs> you couldn't get a plug in or, or buy something. Everything had to be created. Fluid dynamics for the, you know, the deep eyes soldiers when they when they dropped from the from the ship. All of that stuff had to be, you know, created. So we, you know, we had a lot of interest from different movies to see 
to see if our tech could apply to their productions. Wow. Which I absolutely blows my mind. Um, you know, something they mentioned on the DVD special features is they were doing manual. I was like, what? Manual facial animations uh, mm-hmm. on top of the motion capture of the actors. Uh, and, I mean, this film, I'm like, this film is, is almost 20 years old now. You know, another year and it'll be 20. And at the time, you know, in, in on games hardware itself, they're kind of just dinking around in 3D. And this game, there, this movie, excuse me, comes out, and it's just jaw-droppingly uh, rendered. And, th- and then you tell me things like, you know, we had to make everything from scratch. That kind of informs me as to why maybe that that budget um, was so <laughs> huge. That's, <laughs> a, that's I, a very uh, that's a very optimistic budget, by the way. Oh, really? I don't I don't, I don't know figures, but yeah. I, I always thought like I think they started calculating the cost at a certain point. Okay. We made a whole project before. I don't know. Maybe you tell me. Uh, maybe I should watch the, the DVD. Um, <laughs> is there a, is there a, a sequence on the DVD called the Gray Project? Uh shoot. I, I don't. Not that I recall. The, so the gray, gray Project. The gray Project. Like the character, the the main hero, the male heroes named Gray Edwards. It was called the Gray Project because when we started, we we finished this what we thought, at least I thought, and several of my colleagues thought, was the movie. Um, and again, very different than the movie that you know now. The Grey Project was like this um, slice of the movie that showed um, a little girl, her, let's say, stepmother, um, arguing about what Grey is doing, you know, her dad, and... Um, and then it cuts to like scenes of him in the battlefield in a tank, um, you know, just a lot of little like vignettes that that were pieced together to tell this maybe three minute story. Hmm. Um, but very interesting because when we completed it, we did a film out, you know, which we took all of our digital files, we got it onto celluloid and rented a local theater, and we watched it like twenty times as a as a studio as a celebration. Wow. And uh, when we came back to work the following week, like we were told, like basically that was a test. Now we can start production on the on the movie. It's a totally different character designs, totally different like tech designs. Um, we just went off in a whole whole new adventure of uh, Final Fantasy creation. Um, and I think it, you know, the, their thinking was it was a it was you know it was like a catalyst to get the team working properly. And I don't think anything was used in the final, the final film from that. I think that like yeah, everything was archived and kind of wiped from the from the folders by the time you know we heard all that. And I was like, oh, so that, there's there's you know I have versions of it that exist, most of that mostly on VHS and poorly transferred digital copies. But wow, <laughs> just what, it, it was cool. Like in a lot of ways, even though it wasn't fully textured and finalized, really. Um, uh, it, it was really good. Like it's very powerful. It, it's got somebody's got to have a good copy of it out there somewhere. Wow! Release the Project Gray Cut. <laughs> <That'd be> exactly cool. <laughs> the whole three minutes of it. All three minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> it might, might not even be three minutes. It could be less. <laughs> that's a, that's fantastic. Um, so I wonder um, these numbers are what I pulled off of uh, Box Office Mojo. Um, I just I wonder what. 
it actually came out to. You know, it mm. sounds like it was a very expensive um, yeah. project. But I wonder if you have a view on why this film didn't perform better mm. uh, in the in the box office. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've all thought about it at various times. Um, probably because people didn't go see it. It's probably the main reason. Right, I mean, that's the factual <laughs> reason why. <laughs> but it's, it's a tough one, right? It's, it's tough to sell. Like, if the studio's not 100% behind it, they don't know how to market it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think this is the same kind of, it's the same analogy of like game design and art direction in a game. Like if you're not both on the same page, it's hard to know how to complement the other. So if the studio isn't really, like, is it a kid's movie? What do we, how do we market this thing? You know, we're going to, yeah. we're going to aim it at, at uh, adolescence or is, well, it's, a, it's all adult characters. You yeah, know, and that's got to be tough then with this being, you know, the that vanguard of this is the first uh, photorealistic film, but it's animated. So then mm-hmm. studio execs are like, well, it's animated. It's a cartoon. Right. And I then, mean, why would it why would it not be aimed at kids? Like, I don't think there had been, at least in the U.S., there have been no movies made animated for adults. I mean, that, that doesn't exist in the United States to this day, hardly, you know. Yeah. Except, you know, I mean, Pixar movies and... Most animated features after the fact cater to both. Right, know? right. But right. rarely do you get like I mean, you get, you know, a movie that's animated solely aimed at adults. You know. You get the uh you get the odd one every once in a while. Um who's the director there that did the the stop motion? I mean, Wes Anderson's done done one. Or he right. did he did two actually. But yeah, back then it just wasn't nobody did that, so it was hard to market. I think everybody was very proud of the technological achievements in the film, right? Like what, you know, the, the amount of work that went into say the 60,000 hairs in Aki's head, the individual follicles. Right. And a lot of that was bragged about rightfully so, right? Like not, not, yeah. <laughs> not to discredit anyways, these are all huge achievements and how it moves. And like I said, it's, it's all, this is all homegrown brew. So everybody's very proud of it. Was that what the public needed or wanted to hear? Probably not, right? So there, there was a whole missing section of the marketing that had it been there and understood the movie and, and how to make it appealing, that would have that would have helped. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, the script itself, like I said, it was very epic when we started, and just because we all make lemonade as developers and, and you know creators, it get it gets whittled down to its simplest form. Mm. Um, so we lost big chunks of the movie. We lost characters, mm-hmm. you know, trying to, you know, trying to achieve a, a, a ship date that still made sense to the studio. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't think we really pushed it. I think we kind of, we hit the date we said, but you know, at, at, at a loss, right. It, it, it kind of came down to a much more, you know, aliens meets Jurassic park kind of, kind of journey where you know had the other elements remained it would have would have given a bit more of the epic nature of like a 2001 hmm. um, type thing uh, and that that seems like a very fair answer um so i'm going to say from from my perspective just as somebody who didn't work on the film doesn't have any development history um at all and i remember when uh this film was being marketed can remember little snippets of trailers and stuff like that. I went back to watch, uh, watched a couple trailers, 
I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, you, you see the soldier kind of dropping down from the aircraft and things like that. These yeah. really iconic yeah. shots. Um, and uh, as, a, as a kid, I, I loved Final Fantasy, some of the, the earliest story-based games I ever played. Um, so when this film was coming out, I was just like, wow, a Final Fantasy movie. And then I, I remember I went and saw it. Um, and I was like, just, where, where is it all? yeah, right. I was like, <laughs> where's the final fantasy? I got the spirits within, um, and we'll talk about some similarities to the games, uh, mm-hmm. here in a minute. But, uh, a lot of the questions that we got were along the lines of, um, you know, why did they decide to make this? What, what kind of was the drive for that? What, what, yeah. what happened, you know, in that same sense, and I think your marketing answer is really fair. So there's a, a question here from the ABXY mage. We just said, my question is why uh, Slide Bob asked, what was the goal of making this movie? Why and who came up with this idea? And what was the issues mm-hmm. in the production, which is kind of the production stuff that we're discussing. Um, so, you know, we touched a little bit on it. Maybe we'll kind of save that discussion about Hironobu Sakaguchi's very um, personal issues with it. But do you recall there kind of being like, hey, we should make a movie kind of a hmm. moment? I mean... I was, I mean, I'm sure that did happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't there, you know, from the very beginning. I mean, I was there at the beginning of, you know, before the movie started when we were doing the great project. Mm-hmm. But even before that, I mean, people had been working on it. The studio wasn't as big at the time, but people had been working on that for, you know, a good eight months before I started, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a big effort, but it got a lot of, you know, got the pipeline worked out and, like, got some workflow established, mm-hmm. which was probably all thrown out and, you know, recalibrated to suit the production's needs anyway. But I mean, there was, uh, you know, Sakaguchi had a, had a pretty amazing story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wish, you know, something, either the technology were a little, a little less arduous at the time, or if his efforts were a few years later, mm-hmm. um, something had kind of, bridge the gap between those two because we spent a lot of time on just the technical achievements where we couldn't focus as much on the nuances of a good story mm. you know which it deserved uh, so it's, it's the first in a lot of ways did a lot of a lot of things first so there's but i think we're in we're in some kind of german film institution hall of fame or something Oh. I know we, we won something. We won some kind of an award. <laughs> I think we did. We won like the Golden Spirit Award or something. Oh, it was for the soundtrack, I think. Elliot yeah. Goldenthal's soundtrack, which was brilliant. Yeah, I thought the soundtrack yeah. was really great. It's one of the no, we did, better things. I think we won a Guinness World Record for something, but I don't think it was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember now, now that I've mentioned it. That's it's something. Funny. I think we were like the most expensive like video game movie ever made. Or something. Oh yeah. Which is Which not, not necessarily sense. the, yeah, but you know, we had, we had a stellar cast too. Like everybody that contributed to the voice talents was, was really awesome. I mean, we had people too. I don't know if I was talking about, it. we had people who were initially signed to play certain characters and they, they ran off screaming, um, thinking that they were about to contribute to the demise of living actors. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're not allowed well, to name any names. Well, I, I don't, I don't know. Can you Google it and see if it's <laughs> out there already? But the, there was an actor of, that you'd know his name that he was initially signed on to play Gray, and he did some some temp recordings of his lines. And then when he saw his you know his voice paired with the animated character of Gray, 
it kind of freaked him out because it was too real. Ooh, that's in his interesting. Mind. And he was like, I, I'm not doing this. Uh, that was actually quite, look, I, I've met these folks since then. and uh, But there was, there was, so it's all good. It's all water under the bridge. But at the time, I don't know how many people remember this. There was a lot of backlash from certain Hollywood types that were against everything we were doing and saying that we were, we were working towards, you know, the demise of, of, you know, flesh and blood actors. Um, No, that makes sense. I mean, that's the robot putting the manufacturing worker out of a job. Pretty much, which is silly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing even today is going to replace an actor. Right. We're pretty far from Uh, the matrix. We're not the batteries, (laughs) you know? Right, right. Yeah. Even, you know, Andy Serkis is an amazing performance actor um, but even you know even his work gets gets tweaked and you know there, there's an animator or a team of animators to to smooth it out and compensate and change even change the performance if the director needs it in months after his his uh, performance is wrapped it just happens right like nothing is one-to-one so right but yeah there was a lot and, until it became in, until motion capture became known as performance capture, then it was uh, all cool. Everybody was like, "Yeah, not now. Now we're good." That's and that's marketing right there again, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. You, you change the the, the name; it's the same thing. You just change the name slightly, and it it creates that much more trust in people. And and I think that's a that's a good. There's a lot of seesaw in between games and film that most people don't see. Like motion capture is something that you know game studios we're utilizing so it sounds kind of industrial and pedestrian uh, so when an actor of prominence like a tom hanks right like he doesn't want to be a motion capture guy right he wants to be a performance capture so that complements his skill rightly so right like that 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 pays the right kind of accolades to what what he brings to the table mm-hmm. um so it, it does make sense and it is a marketing thing it's the same thing but it it it, it attunes you to you know what you should be focused on uh, for the product, whereas just the motion in a video game, um, you know, was, was was needed when it started. Um, you know, the massive system uh, that was made for for games and ended up being used in, uh, you know, Weta perfected it for Lord of the Rings for like oh, all yeah. of their big crowd sim shots. Uh, so the, there's always this back and forth. And today we're at a point where the the line between the two is very blurred. Mm. You know, if anything, the the game real-time you know rendering of the unreal engine is directly contributing to like the mandalorian and all of these shows that know how to you know they're basically taking the next step in in visual effects evolution real-time onset you know environments happening I, that is fascinating to see the the evolution of technology in these terms uh i didn't find anything uh, as far as uh who who might have been originally cast or attached to the project who uh, who ducked <laughs> out of the motion capture. But, I mean, this movie has even surprised me at a young age of how many big names are attached to it. Uh, you know, Donald Sutherland, Alec Baldwin, yeah. Keith David, who's a favorite voice actor of mine for oh. generations, uh, Gene Simmons, um, Steve Buscemi, has James Woods, of course, plays a villain. This time watching it through... Um, yeah, Aki opens her mouth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, who's that voice? Whose voice <laughs> is that? And my wife goes, ah, Mulan. And I was like, ah, yeah. it is Mulan. 
Ming Na, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, such she a... totally brought she brought the whole character to life. Like, yeah, everybody animates to a certain you know to a certain idea in their head, and then once the voice is added, you just start rethinking everything. You know, like oh, we got to complement the voice yeah. more directly. Uh, Ming Na's voice, she has a very warm and welcoming voice, mm-hmm. which I think was the the perfect kind of almost the antithesis to a very uh brutal um kind of dystopian future um and there's a lot there's violence in the film and there's moments that are very bleak but she has this very kind of welcoming um almost familial kind of voice uh tone that that that's just wonderful but it, no it's it's the right counterbalance to yeah. the visuals for sure absolutely um so just to kind of touch on one last thing before we move on from perf- it's it's box box office performance um and this is something that a lot of people were talking about as we were discussing, you know, the subject before we started this show. Uh, and something that crossed my mind, too, is maybe if they just hadn't called it Final Fantasy, that yeah. that would have negated that opportunity for uh, expectations to be created. So I especially at that time, I mean, I think at that time I didn't even have a TV in my house. So I'd seen a trailer at you know my dad's house or at a friend's house or every once in a while in a store or a laundromat, um, right. and so I you know I saw the the space stuff and the sci-fi stuff, but I expected to go in and see the chocobos and the moogles and the wizards and all that stuff, the fantasy stuff, right? Because of you know that's in the title, right? And it and it was kind yeah. of it was I mean seven and eight were had their sci-fi in it and six as well. Um, and there's sci-fi elements kind of going back even to the original with ideas of time paradoxes and stuff like that. But it's still a very high fantasy flavored series. So a question here from Eros Elric. How would you rate Spirits Within's reception as a sci-fi movie versus a video game spin-off? So do you think that there's some credibility to that? That maybe if they kind of tweak their, the name again, maybe there's that marketing there. No, you know... Ultimately, I don't. I don't know if it makes. It's the whole marketing angle, right? Like, you're setting an expectation with that name, mm-hmm. and if you don't fulfill the expectation, is this goes back to the the comments I made earlier? You know, putting putting things into a level, you're telling a narrative. Um, so tell the right one, and I think setting an expectation that you don't deliver on is a mistake. You know, it might be. It might not be obvious at the time. Right, because it's a it's a it's such a popular franchise. You want to monopolize off of the familiarity of the name, mm. but we didn't really go that route. I mean, you could argue that there's there are fantasy elements in the movie, yes. for sure, right? But there, I think the uh, the first thing most people would conclude on on a few minutes of the visuals would be more science fiction than science fantasy, mm-hmm. right? Which this is you know, Star Wars is more science fantasy, even though it's easy to call it science fiction, but uh, 2001's definitely science fiction. Yes, more um, in the, the hard science fiction kind of category. Yeah, like where where science can take you, um, and without the fantastical, you know, magical elements. And you know, when you start talking about earth energy and spiritual energy, mm-hmm. you, you're definitely into the fantasy end of that, um, you know, of those options. But uh, yeah, I think you know the the name ultimately. I, I always think about. Uh, I think it was Jack Kirby and, and Stan Lee at one point. They had a bet, you know, because back <laughs> back when Marvel Comics was still like, 
you know, it wasn't this multi-billion dollar uh, company. You know, they're they're still just kind of doing whatever they they could to to make popular titles. And they had some kind of a bet, like I bet you I could make I could take the worst name of a comic book and turn it into a hit. And, <laughs> and they came up with uh, like Nick Fury and his Howlin' Commandos. <laughs> and it was kind of like you know that they had the the budget to accommodate a bet. I mean, there must've been other factors in play, but that was the awful name that, that they decided to try to, you know, uh, uh, in the terms of their wager, tried to, to make popular. And of course it became insanely popular. So even the worst name isn't necessarily the thing that could be the sole reason for success or failure. Right. But I think the final fantasy name, you know, it, like I said, it, it had an expectation attached to it, and we didn't really deliver on that. Except for Dr. Sid, which is a direct reference, so everybody should have been satisfied. <laughs> uh, that's all you need. Yes. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the similarities to the games, because we did get a direct question about it as well. Oh, okay. From uh, the TT podcast, who said, Are there any hidden nods to the series oh. that can be seen within the scenes? Um, like a Chocobo, for example, or a Moogle. Also, why was the direction more towards sci-fi than fantasy? I think that's probably a Sakaguchi kind of a question. Um, mm-hmm. So that was something that I took notes on when I, I sat down and watched this. I was like, okay, what are some similarities? Um, and I was thinking Gaia and the afterlife. Yeah. Um, the afterlife is a big theme in a lot of Final Fantasy games. You've got characters that have permadeath. And characters wrestling with grief, um, and and just to be like briefly candid, uh, Final Fantasy as a series helped me personally, um, kind of address subjects of grief. I, I'm of the opinion that a lot of our society today just doesn't know how to grieve real well, and so we bottle up things, and and so I think it's healthy for having these these fantasy and science fiction stories to kind of address that and just. Talk about the afterlife, talk about these ideas, whether you believe in an afterlife of some kind or not, but just death is going to happen to everything dies, you know, and yeah. and so it's best that we have kind of a healthy kind of attitude towards that. Um, but loss is a tremendous thing, of course, not to belittle that in the least. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting was the um, sort of the plot progression of collecting spirits. Um, sure. And I thought of the idea of collecting um, various things in the Final Fantasy games. A lot of the early ones seem centered around, you know, going and finding these specific crystals, these elemental crystals. So I thought there's an analogy there. Um, And then science fiction, like I mentioned, you know, there were specific Final Fantasy titles that were more science fiction-y than others. And like you said, the big one is there's Dr. Sid. Now, (laughs) it's spelt with an S, I guess, in, in the credits. It says Dr. Sid with an S. But it's yeah. still Sid. Come on. He's in every Final <laughs> Fantasy. Here he is. So, uh, James, I don't know if... I mean, did you sneak a Cactuar or like a Chocobo in the background in, in any of these things? I did not. Okay. Um, I, I, I can't say I can't say one way or the other if anybody else did or uh-huh. didn't. Um, but I, there are Easter eggs throughout that movie, like like most movies. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you're... When you're uh, 2 a.m. texturing the side of a spaceship, you tend to sneak something into that texture that you hope nobody spots. 
Mm. Kind of like, you know, not, not, to, not to fall back on another production, but if you knew where to look exactly at the right time, the back of the Nebuchadnezzar in the Matrix has my initials carved right into the back of it. Really? It was such a it was such a big it was such a big shot that opened up the movie and the Wachowskis at one day in one of our dailies kept saying like more detail like here it needs more you know more greeblies here and there so I just I just I filled it up with a big JHD on, on the back and and filled it out with a lot of things you wouldn't really know where it is it's it, I know where it is but um, but stuff like that happens all the time I I don't know if I can't think of anybody. I don't, to be honest, I don't think a lot of people knew what a Chocobo was on that team. Right, yeah. Not, not, every, most everybody was coming from film. I was like one of the, the oddballs that came from game development mm-hmm. onto that production. I was um, going to say, what well, you were talking about kind of that, uh, not separation, but the, the compartmentalization of the different teams that worked on Final Fantasy X and that worked on Spirits Within and them hunting down specific talent. So it seems like you, you you would have a lot of film people working on this. Um, now, I guess there is a Chocobo in the movie, not like as a bird kind of running around in the background. But uh, in one uh, screenshot, it looks like you could see the, this insignia on one of Aki's shirts that resembles uh, mm. the Chocobo. So that's in there, folks. It's a Final Fantasy movie, whether you like it or not. It's in there. <laughs> Sam, I'm learning, I'm learning more and more as we talk. And there you go. All right, so let's talk about kind of just the movie itself then. Um, We'll get to interpretation here in a moment, but I was wondering if you had any favorite scenes or favorite moments in this movie, maybe things that you worked on specifically. Oh, dude. Uh, Well, of course I liked everything I worked on. Yeah. I (laughs) I had to. You had no choice. You worked on it so much. That's your baby. Yeah. Yeah. No, you got to like it. You You put your... Put your you invest a lot of time, let's put it that way, mm. uh, especially the trial and error part. But I mean, there's so many, there's so many moments that I think of, um, you know, just, just working with that team. There's a lot of behind the scenes moments that are just brilliant. Um, but it, you know, in the movie, uh, the, the stuff that comes to mind is very selfish of me to, to mention, but I, you know, the, the first thing that leaps to mind is just like the, uh, the gel packs in particular, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the sequence where the you know the deep eye squadron comes in and the drop ship, and the way they egress from the ship is they just jump, and then they shoot these gel packs into the ground, which yeah. expand into these uh, mounds of gel that they soft land into, and by the time they plummet through the the, the mass of it, they're dis- decelerated to you know zero, and they can they can just walk off off the gel. Um, so it's, it's a cool, it's a cool moment, but in the movie, it was only used for that sequence. And it's a weird production to be part of. And I say weird in the sense that it was an unorthodox production where they would, production would, would ask us for input at times. Like, what is this thing that we're working on? If you have ideas of like what the vehicles could be or what's the name of this thing. Hmm. And I, you know, I was lucky enough that a lot of the ideas that I came up with, um, were incorporated into the film. I don't even know if they're always said. Like the the, the, the vehicle, the big four-legged vehicle, like they came up with the name Quattro for it. I also modeled it, so that, that kind of helped. Maybe maybe I influenced the decision. Um, uh, but Quattro stood for quad-axial all-terrain rover. 
um, there's a, there's a bunch of little things like that throughout. But the, the gel packs in in particular, I was like, well, it's only used once. Like, you know, a James Bond movie, they introduce some little gadget in the beginning of the movie. It's it's the Chekhov's gun scenario. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the film theory. Um, there's a film theory called Chekhov's gun, which is if you show me a gun in a movie, at some point you have to use it. Right, so you show this gel pack technology and you never use it again. That's that seems like a, a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I was able to bring in that that narrative element at the end when the quattro snaps off of the cable and plummets into the into the final Gaia crater. Um, so originally they were just gonna, you know, careen down the, the the crevice and and eventually smash into the the bed there and and be like half alive. I'm like that. That's the perfect spot to bring the gel pack yeah. back in, like an emergency <laughs> gel pack. You know, now it justifies it. Now, now it's telling a total story here. Um, so that that was like a, a a proud moment for me that that got incorporated into the movie. Um, so I, you know, being involved in those sequences, um, it's always good to see ideas come to life. And in that one, there was a little extra influence than normally would be would be allowed. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm always happy to see that come together as a as a moment. Oh, definitely! Wow, and that's so. A while ago, I I, I wrote this article on uh, on our site um, about remembering the humanity behind uh, behind games. So uh, I consider myself a video game critic, but I there's a lot of stigma attached to the term critic. Um, like you're just out there to just you know tear things down and things like that. But uh, feedback is again right, 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 and I just I don't want to be mean about it. I think you know, um, so I, and I'm sure with your history of creating, um, you could tell when somebody's just being you know a horrible person to you, and when somebody has <laughs> feedback that's 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 there that's meaningful, even though that 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 mean feedback you know had a catalyst. Um, it's like just you, know, you don't have to be an a hole about it, kind of a thing. So, <laughs> right. so with criticism, I tend to think in those regards. And one of the formative kind of moments for me, kind of moving forward with that brand of criticism, of criticism is uh, sort of explaining what works and what doesn't work, or what is good and what is not good in a certain subject. Um, mm-hmm. Was this moment for uh, the game um, Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle? Um, where they were at E3 and one of the developers of the game was in the audience and Shigeru Miyamoto, you know, takes the stage and he's there talking with, I think it was the Ubisoft um, guy, CEO or what it, director, whatever he, his position was. I mean, and it's Shigeru friggin' Miyamoto, like, you know, an icon, a legend. And, sure. uh, and Miyamoto's just, you know, talking about how like this game really captures the spirit of Mario and it's wonderful and all these things. And it pans to the creator, the, one of the creators of the game, Mario plus Rabbids. And he's in the audience there and he's, he's like this burly man with a beard and he's got tears in his eyes. And that moment like really like haunted me. And in that second, I was like, wow, well, like a powerful, like emotional, very human moment that he had there transparently in front of a full you know live audience um and you can't you can't you can't manufacture that sort of i mean dude's not an actor so right. uh to me that that kind of illustrated to try and remember that behind all of these things behind games behind the movies there are real people that have real 
hearts, real lungs, real bones and flesh and, and blood. And they have real memories and, and real ideas that they put into into everything. I mean, so I, I loved that story that you just told about the the green goo that, that <laughs> slows down there. Their uh, their fall, uh, so they, they can land safely. I mean, such. So when we were watching, I was like, "Man, that's such a great idea." Uh, and it's so small; it's barely even there. But there's there's a human element behind all these things, and so I I I, I kind of hesitate to get into all the. I mean, there's a lot of people that out there that evidently do not like this movie at all. <laughs> I know some of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have over the years, um, but there's. I think there's so much more to enjoy in not necessarily ignoring, you know, the film's flaws. I'm not saying that, but but in talking about the memories and the and the conversations and the ideas that were there, whether they were executed in, you know, an a- appropriate way or an accurate way or not, it's just it's fascinating to me that you know somebody put thought into the texture on a rock. Somebody put oh thought God, yeah. into you know, how many rocket engines are going to be on the back of this vehicle? Yep. Yep. Aki's ship there, the Black Boa. Um, I, I was one of the first ones to start modeling that one. And I had a clay model that was sculpted to, to draw reference from. And I also had blueprints. And the two were not even the same thing. Like, whoever did the sculpture kind of improvised, again, like model model makers are apt to do. Mm. Um, and I was, here I am, stuck in the middle of, like, which one am I following? You know, which one do you want? Because uh, you know, it's a it was a lot of work back then to to at a certain point change change your idea. So we 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 keep fluctuating between this type of engine, the, you know, this angle of the you know the pylons, um, how far the nose comes out, all these little things. If you could just imagine the amount of of just back and forth and time that went into trying to find the balance between just something that probably people look at and go like, eh, yeah, has <laughs> a dumb looking ship. And by the way, black boa, I, I think it was original. This happened a lot and that I don't mean any disrespect, but I think it was, it was supposed to be named the black boar. Okay. That was, that's what I was given the black boar. Huh? But with the phonetic pronunciation, when it was said by our Japanese crew, it came out black boa. I see. And it was written phonetically later on. Ah, so there's and it just became the black boar. So if you think of it as a boar, like a pig, it's got a pig nose. You think of it as a black boar, kind of makes sense. Um, but I think it, it it got a little uh, lost in translation and became the black boar, which is a cool name. Mm-hmm. It just there's nothing about it that's snake-like, um, for sure. But yeah, we 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 labor over things. I can't even tell you. Uh, I could. I, I mean, I could tell you, but we don't have time. Each button that people press, like if it's a hologram, how much uh, specular highlight, what, what's the exact right color? After mm-hmm. we do a film out, um, is, the color, is the color still looking the way that we want it to? Let's, let's change it in post. Um, you know, the animations of, of just, a t- like, I'm very lucky. I got to work on animating things, not characters, but I animated for that movie. I've animated characters later on in games, but like, animating doing motion graphics modeling designing texturing that doesn't always happen uh, i was just very lucky that i was able to contribute to to all those things when the opportunity was there mm. um so I, to, to think about 
I, I think about everything when I put it in. I mean, I, I know that some people don't like certain things, but I'll, I'll tell you my secret um, after after I tell you this detail. But like every everything that goes into something I make, there's a reason for it. Mm. And you might not agree with that reason or the, the events swirling around that thing might be distasteful. But I can guarantee you I could I could talk about each prop in detail that that I put in. Um, and why it's there. Mm. So one thing I, 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 I really dislike is when, you know, you're working with a group of people and you ask, like, for me, it's a, a lot of it's about motivation. And I'm like, why did you do this? I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't mean to imply that um, I'm casting a judgment on it. Why did you do this? And if you have a good explanation for it, you might convince me that that's a better way to go about it than what my, you know, preconception was. But if you just say, I don't know, I just did something, which some people are apt to do. They're just rushed for time and they just do things. Mm-hmm. I always want to redo it. Like at that point, I'm like, OK, so you don't even know why you did it. Let, let's let's make sure we're doing this the right way. And, right. And if we have time, let's let's reconfigure that. But here's 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 how like the secret I have for all of the hatred, because uh, I've worked on a lot of, on games as well that get the same kind of negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never, you never hope for it. Sometimes you can kind of tell as, <laughs> as you're halfway through something, you're like, oh boy, yeah, this isn't quite working out right. But you still try, right. like you, you got to try to finish it. But here's the thing: the opposite of love that most people immediately would think might be hate is not correct. The opposite of love, like when you love something, you love Star Wars, you love Star Trek, you love these properties, you love books and all of these different things. The opposite of loving all that stuff is really indifference. Yes. So the fact that people have such an emotional response, even if it's negative, just tells you that, you know, we're really all swimming in the same pool here. We all have an invested emotion in this thing. And it might it just it might not be exactly what you would have done or what you would have anticipated, but it's not apathy. Right. I and that 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 fact that um, you know, they've said something that they've demonstrated that whether it's vitriol or, or you know, mm-hmm. just being frustrated by it, it means they care, right? I So, you know, the, the Disney Star Wars, to kind of bring up stars we've been mentioning a couple times, Uh-oh. the Disney Uh-oh. Star Wars, you know, I, it ruffled people's feathers and other people liked it. But I didn't, I didn't know I had so many feathers. <laughs> but, I mean, imagine if Disney Star Wars came out and nobody cared. That would mm-hmm. be weird. That would be weirder yeah. than if it came out and fans argued, because fans are fans. They're gonna, they're going to sure. have those, those arguments. But I really appreciate you know you talking about how there's there's thought behind all of these things, and I'm not the only one either. No, I mean, of most course. everybody that's on it, they're you know most everybody's putting in right everything they think is going to be the best combination of, of detail. Oh yeah, absolutely, and you're making all of these. These little minor decisions. So I the the only like barest grasp that I have on what you're talking about from a personal creative experience is um, I do a lot of graphic design and my wife's a graphic okay. designer. Um, she does a lot of contract work, so we're constantly kind of talking about things. Sometimes she'll call me in the office and like, what do you think about this? The font placement or the color here, yeah. or I put a gradient here, or there's light on this character's face from this direction. Um, and we'll have kind of these discussions about really kind of very small details, but it's almost like art is comprised of all of those small details that complete the sum, right? 
So one of the things that I resist a lot is people say, ah, that's just a quick cash grab. But <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's one thing to say, you know, I didn't like the movies, Final Fantasy Spirits Within. It's another thing to say, oh, they just did that for a quick cash grab. Absolutely. Now, $134 million budget and several years of very detailed, intense work is not a quick cash grab. Yeah, no. The, it, it, it was a labor of love from the day one of writing the script mm. to you know the last render we did. You know, so many people putting in tons of personal time, overtime. Like, I mean, we don't get paid for overtime for, for the stuff that we did. Um, some movies do, you know. The, I think the movie industry is a little bit more mature than, say, the games industry, where we're constantly putting in extra effort, extra time, mm. in in hopes that we're, you know, we're gonna we're gonna make the best the best product mm -hmm. possible. Um, sometimes you can't answer all the questions you need to in pre production, but you know that that movie in particular, like I said, there's, it it's a very personal journey for. Sakaguchi-san and you know like his 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 parents are very uh, much a part of that story and you know I just I always look forward to what he's doing next he's he's always involved in something amazing um, but it's uh, yeah to think it's a cash grab exact opposite you know mm -hmm. if anything it was it's it, it was his effort to try to share his spiritual journey on a on, a, on an epic scale. Mm -hmm. It's such an immensely personal, um, very transparent thing to try and put down in words, not to mention a, a movie. Um, just amazing. What a dumb, what a dumb thing to try to grab cash for. I mean, <laughs> it costs that much. Like, you gotta, you, you, there's gotta be an easier cash grab than that. Right, I mean, yeah. that. That would be the last choice. Like, hey, let's make a revolutionary photoreal, you know, movie. If we wanted a cash grab, he could have sold smut. Instead, he decided to make like. You know, a super, super ambitious project, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, somebody could have strung together pre-rendered cinematics from the games. Like, I could see that being, there like, you, a, go, yeah. you know... That would have been like a cash a grab for sure. cash yeah. grab, you know. But it, was, it was an effort to make, not just that statement, but, you know, sure, a franchise if possible. So, you know, while we're on that subject, with interpreting the film, there is a very strong kind of um, spiritual line mm -hmm. that runs through the film. Um, I think it's interesting that the film, if I remember right, opens with a dream sequence. Um, yep. And then one of the things that really mystified me, though, um, watching it again recently, is uh, the ending of the film, which has Aki kind of alone. Gray has passed away. She, she was like right there when he dies. And she's sort of like the last kind of carrier of this concept of of the gaia in the planet mm -hmm. um sid is still alive obviously um and so she's she's rising out of this lift out of the chasm where the climax has occurred and she looks up and she sees um this bird an eagle hawk or something like that flying through the air uh, and it soars off and you get this gorgeous sunset or sunrise sunrise um since it was that nighttime sunrise uh and then the film ends and I and I just wondered that's such a like um tragic is maybe not the best word, poignant maybe, um mm -hmm. place to end the film. Uh sure. with her being alone, not even reconnected with Sid that we get to see. Obviously she did. Um but so what are some of your thoughts on 
maybe not necessarily even just the ending of the film, um, but just about what it means, you know? Yeah, man. Um, that's all. I mean, your description of the imagery is, is dead on. Um, I relived it. I'm not crying. Um, <laughs> But you you mentioned the dream. It starts off in the dream, and we did we did a few variations of that. But uh, she's recording her dreams to try to you know to piece these these clues together um, in her subconscious. And, and of course, the dream that's recorded at the beginning of the movie, I, I have this number burnt into my brain because I did so many different renders of it. Is December thirteenth, twenty sixty-five. So it's a Christmas movie. Let's not forget that fact. Final Fantasy: The Spirits Within. It's not just Die Hard and Lethal Weapon that are that are Christmas movies. You know, Final Fantasy. It's got to get up there too. Um, but no, I'll, you know, in seriousness, like that, that that whole all of that symbolism, I think it kind of speaks for itself. Like the hope and the the resurgence of life, right? As she's rising from the the chasm and the and the the hawk, you know, takes flight. Um, that's a clear you know, piece of visual metaphor for, for life. Um, but to me, it's always been that change is inevitable, right? Mm. And it's that it's the transfer of energy it never dissipates. So call it whatever you want. Every, you know, everybody's been trying to put a label on it for thousands of years, but there's a transference of energy. And I think this movie does a really amazing job at kind of showing that, that um, something that's perceived as harmful, um, is really benign mm. if you understand it, mm. um, or even misguided or confused, or even as scared as you may be, because um, all of the spirits were really dislodged. They didn't choose to be where they were. Right. Um, and but it's 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 really that metaphor of like change will happen. You know, life and death occur, and it's that transference of energy from one to the next. Mm. Um, from, you know, one one level to the next that that will continue um, and it will you know there'll be dark moments and then there'll be rebirth as well mm. there's a few key scenes i wish had been left in the movie um there might even be a slight this might be something i'm not i'm not 100 sure if it's in the movie but uh jane you know one of the deep eye squadron uh troopers there jane i think her is her last name proudfoot i, I know she was supposed to be native american oh i didn't know that so i re i do remember jane uh, she was in the film. I don't know if they mentioned her name. Or yeah, her last I'm not name sure. Or big part. It might be on her armor. I'm just trying, uh, characters did go through some permutations, so mm -hmm. forgive me if the name is changed in the final. But um, but she had an amulet, or, or well, maybe not an amulet, but she had some kind of stone that hung around her neck that that had a spiritual meaning to her uh, Native American roots. Oh. And I think at one point when she was being, you know, in in her final scene where, where she's fighting one of the spirits, as it's attacking her, because as you know, the, the spirits attacked by these ethereal beings kind of getting their their kind of ghost like tendrils into the body of a person and it would it would extract their their spiritual energy out of them and leave their body as a dead husk. Mm. Um, so as that's happening to her in her final stand with Neil, um I don't know if this is in the movie, but I know the intent initially was going to be like to have that spirit tendril coming at her and then almost recoil for a second as it comes in contact with the the stone that hangs around her neck. Mm. And then it, it, you know, eventually like recomposes itself and then attacks her in, in a different way. But like that, I think I, I love that that's there or it was supposed to be there, whether it's in the print or not. 
because it pays it pays respect to any ideology that you might follow right? right because all of these these weird alien things it's all the same energy you know we all we all work off the same energy and, and, it, and it saw that little um that that stone had a spiritual meaning to her and it it was as effective as a cross to Dracula for a second, you know, before it was able to, you know, take her in, in a different way. Mm, that's fascinating. So there's a lot of little things like that that are, that are cool to me that, you know, given a chance to, to re, you know, to focus on different narrative aspects, I'm sure, I'm sure could have benefited the whole program. Like at one point, one of, I think they mention it in the movie, but one of the spirits that they have to, that Aki's looking for is a little girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was that was part of the great project. I think that little girl, um, she, oh. she was the prototype for it, um, you know, for that character. And I think, she, I think she she kind of gives a little exposition on it that that it was, you know, one of the spirits was a little girl. Um, mm-hmm. But that I think like a moment like that, like seeing her actually, you know, show don't tell, would have been more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there was a different ending. You probably saw it on the DVD that um, I think uh, the final spirit that in, in the alternate ending, and I, I could be getting this a little wrong, but I think it was the uh, the child that was in, in her that was just recently conceived from from wow. her romance with Grey. So that was the thing that, that saved them at the end. Like that was the final one that came came through. That's interesting. I think that would have made, I think that would have made kind of the film make a little more sense. I was a little confused as to how right. they overcame the the alien Gaia. Um, so it's interesting to kind of hear about the things that were that were cut. Uh, but it all seems to fit into that subtitle, the spirits within. And so you have maybe this idea of Gaia, the spirit of the planet within the planet as this metaphysical substance or entity. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time that, that there's spirits within, you know, a variety of things and, and people. Uh, and I was just thinking when this film was over, I was like, you know, it would have been interesting to see Aki didn't just save the world. Now she has kind of a new sort of uh, metaphysical or theological reality that she's discovered or uncovered and she's able to make then the Gaia theory, not just a theory. So it would have been interesting to see how that could have impacted future characters or, you know, the, the direction that the world was going in. Um, But I think, I think that's one of the more, for me personally, one of the, one of the interesting aspects of the film. Very nice. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's aspects of the production that, Again, it's just very unique that didn't happen. Oh, I could, I mean, I could talk about so many things, but like, at a certain point, we have to do like rough dialogue, you know, for characters, mm-hmm. and that we all kind of auditioned for different parts, just to, you know, to give animation something to, to start doing some of the lip sync to. And of course, you know, it's all just scratch dialogue; no, nothing's going to be used. Um, but I did all of Steve Buscemi's, all of Neil's. Stuff. So I was cast as Neil on the film. So I did all of his dialogue, and and here's how they ran it. Um, again, very very unique. Like I, I would I would do the voice. I would record as written, you know, the sequence that, mm-hmm. that they wrote for his dialogue, and then it was just pretty much like, well, if you can think of something else to say, <laughs> do it. Do it. You can do another take, and you can do it. You can say it a different way. 
Um, and after a while, I got to know, you know, the Neil character very well. So there's a lot of me in Neil, because um, he's, you know, he he's a uh, he's a little bit of a smartass in the movie. But uh, a lot of that dialogue, like I can't remember exactly what was said, but there are moments like when he when they're trying to um, unlock the the tethers of the black boa from you know from the hangar so they can take off. And I think the original dialogue was something like. He's at the controls trying to hotwire the, you know, and unlock it and said something like, oh, the Axio gyro pre-sub inertia oscillators all messed up. I don't think I have time to recalibrate it. And so I, you know, I recorded it as written and I'm like, I, I think I could do that better. And, and they're like, okay, let's, let's do an alternate take. And this is the one that's in the movie. And I'm very proud of this where he goes up to the machine and says, uh, oh, it's locked naturally. Huh. Ta-da! cinematic history written <laughs> live and it's much that's such a uh, it's a better line i think it's more concise <laughs> it's it's not so you know bogged down in technical right. terms it's, it's i love the technical stuff too but um yeah sometimes it's just it's just better so there's a lot of moments like that where i was able to inject a little a little humor and and fun i wish he was one of the characters that we you know made a little bit more unique because everybody's very good looking in this movie, mm. um, even General Hine, you know the bad guy. Mm. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, asymmetry or quirks to mm. uh, you know to them. Whereas like Steve Buscemi, the person is you know just an amazing amount of character and interest visually. Right, he's just got a lot a, a lot of uh, you know uniqueness to him that makes him makes him enjoyable to to listen to and watch. So oh yeah. When when you just have the voice and then it's coming out of a like, I almost wish he looked more like Steve Buscemi in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, because Buscemi has that face that you can't mistake. You're like, exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's who he is, right? Like, yeah. um, but it, it's hard for, I think people are getting better at it, but it's, when you're creating something, you want it to be perfect. You want it to be symmetrical, and nobody's face is symmetrical. Right. Like, like you look at... Uh, you know, actors that you probably really like, actresses, they have some quirk to them mm-hmm. that works in a way that's positive, but, you know, you might not choose on the page. Like, anybody who has, uh, you know, a little a lisp or something or an overbite or, you know, a mole here or there, people don't want to plan for those things. They want perfect, and it comes out being kind of bland. I think the human beauty, the human form is just, you know, beauty through imperfections. Oh, and 100%. Totally there's, agree. There's just no... I mean, when you said, like, a perfectly symmetrical face, one of the funny things that my wife, who went to school for the graphic design, showed me from her work from the past is, like, oh, here's when we, you know, flipped our faces so that it was just perfectly <laughs> symmetrical, and you're like, wow, you look like a monster. Yeah, it's all weird. <laughs> nobody's... nobody's uh, like, uh, I think Kennedy was... John Kennedy was, like, close to being symmetrical but even when they they compare his face side to side you're like yeah he's an alien all of a sudden yeah uh it's interesting to me too that you brought up um you know you wishing that uh buscemi uh or that neil rather resembled buscemi a little bit more yeah Uh, one question that we had was from this guy r sick who said i've always wondered if they designed the characters on any real life Mm. people as i always thought captain gray was a dead ringer Mm -hmm. for ben affleck um so was that something that kind of passed through your minds and conversations? 
I can neither confirm or disconfirm that <laughs> Ben Affleck's likeness may have been strewn about the character department. Ah, that's interesting. At, at certain points, I think uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was a, uh, you know, he was a target for General Hine. Oh, okay. I could so, see that in the yeah. eyes. Well, it, it changed. Like once, once the, you know, once the, the voice cast was finalized, you know, the characters changed a little bit to, mm-hmm. to accommodate sometimes. Aki went through several versions and like the early stuff, like in the dream sequence recorder at the very beginning of the film, she looks a little different than she does near the end of the film. Mm. Um, and Dr. Sid was our last character made. Um, and I think he's at the best, right? Like here's, this is a good tip for all you kids out there making stuff. Don't start with your hero character. <laughs> <laughs> Do that one closer to the end yeah. uh, because you'll, you'll learn so many so many te- techniques and, and approaches that uh, you want to you want to save for your most important character totally makes sense i mean dr sid is such an impressive model yeah, he's great. uh the hair uh, or lack thereof on top of his head at least uh the mm-hmm. wrinkles the one of the things that we really appreciate my pre appreciated let me start that sentence over. one of the things that my wife and i really appreciated in watching the film over again was that uh, that degree of transparency in the skin? So you got some of you know the blueness there mm-hmm. in the skin tone. So it's not just a flat kind of a you know uh, a tone to it, um, but it has that degree of um, like transparency to it. It's a yeah subsurface scattering. Yeah, you know the light the light that hits the skin still kind of permeates you know into into depth and around corners, and so that's why your ears kind of glow at times. You know. Mm all that all that stuff but it's one of the things i'm kind of bummed about because i did the i did the spirit plant that they find in old new york and when i modeled that i had scanned some leaves from the local foliage you know in hawaii mm-hmm. and i did i couldn't get that i couldn't get that translucency in the like i wanted the the veins in the in the leaves to to be uh you know more opaque than than the, the the meat of the leaf itself i mean i guess i did it in the texture sense but it there was no shot that had like a really bright light beaming behind it that could have really showcased it ah i um, see what you, you know mean. what i mean like this, it's hard to the material the properties can be there but if you know if the scene isn't if it isn't set up for that but you know the, the little plant thing it's a local hawaiian plant and now i know <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> that's fantastic uh, I mean, I'm going to go back and watch it and be like, aha, that's a uh, friggin' Leilani leaf or something like that. Who knows? That's funny. Maybe it's a lily koi leaf. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Delicious. <laughs> well, uh, to kind of move on to the last section here, audience questions, we all just have one remaining here. But, folks, if you're listening and you want to ask a question or share a comment to get a mention on the show, then just keep an eye on my Twitter at the Well Read Mage where I announce the topics for each MageCast episode in advance, or you can email me, thewellreadmage at gmail.com. And also, this is the part of the show now where I announce the topic for our next episode of MageCast in advance. If you want to start getting your questions ready, uh, we are going to be talking about Cowboy Bebop, the 1998 PlayStation 1 game, which was developed by Bandai, based on the anime, of course. We have an opportunity to play it in English, so I'm looking forward to that and sharing some info about it with you. So get your questions ready, your comments ready, and we'll see you on that next episode. We just have this one final question. This is from Julius the Orange. 
who said, I happened to rewatch The Spirits Within a few weeks ago. Oh, which reminds me, I talked to a podcast group that they said they were just going to discuss this movie uh, on their show. Um, right. And they said they would listen to this one. So I wonder if they'll quote you on some of the things that you mentioned here. Oh, crap. Uh, <laughs> they're like, he said Ben Affleck. Uh, anyway, so Julius said here, I'm curious about how much work went into creating Aki's wrist, wrist holo since Psycho also Psycho Seiko. Seiko, yeah. Since Seiko also made a watch. Did Ooh. Seiko's design come first? Did they place any limits based on what they could produce? Uh, the Seiko Final Fantasy watch was a limited edition wrist watch that ran parallel with the release of the film. I didn't that's know a, about that's that. That's a very informed question. Yes, it is, yeah. And and very apropos, I may add. I, I did all that. Oh, you did? Yeah, that's all me. Wow. Um, I mean, okay. The wrist hollow stuff is all me. Uh, we, had a, we had a really brilliant uh, concept artist, too. I think it was Nakazawa. I think he did a lot of... He, he would do a lot of concept stuff of kind of like some layout for the, the holograms themselves, but... He, it was just a starting point, you know. Um, you didn't have time to fixate on each little thing, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I did all the all the wrist hollow stuff, and I built I built the, uh, the the model of the Seiko watch in the movie. But I also got to work with the Seiko design team. Wow! Um, because they were, you know, we knew that they were going to make a product to release, and the one in the movie, it's kind of like a shackle. You know, I don't know if you remember exactly. Right, right, right. It, it's very. Uh, um, it, they were innovating in a lot of ways. Um, boy, I, I, I could talk about this one quite a bit. The uh, the watch itself was based on an existing uh, Seiko wa- or Pulsar watch. It was called the Pulsar Spoon, and uh, it it was the and, and I got one from the production um, to study, and it was supposed to. It had a little joystick on it that you could you could tap in messages. Oh. So you could you could go to an alphabet. I mean, this is this is high tech stuff for 1997, right? Yeah. Like this is big, big, big asks. And what the technology that Seiko wanted to bring was, if you had this watch and I had this watch, and we were in a certain proximity to each other, the watches would notify that there's there's a like minded spirit around, <laughs> and we could and we could message each other. You know, this is before people had you know commonly had cell phones or beepers even, right? Um, so this was a big, big ask kind of thing. And uh, so I got to work with the Seiko team to envision like how the watch in the movie looked, but they knew that they were going to make the one that they were going to mass produce or, you know, physically produce for uh, an audience uh, was going to be a little different. And it looks more like the Deep Eye Squadron watch in some ways. But wow. uh, but, there, but there's like a there's a little similarity between both, like. There's there's these little rectangular computer chips that pop off the the Aki let's call it the shackle watch that's in the movie um, and those those kind of like um, panel lines are engraved into the the watch that was shipped so that you know they don't do anything but there there's an homage to the to the watch one but yeah it was a pretty tight partnership but again I I, I was just very lucky to be in the right place at the right time to, to contribute to both of those things. Um, I remember I was I was tuning in the the render band shader for metal on that and and at one point I, I kind of hit it to a point where it was it was like one of the first things that we were like oh geez like this looks real wow <laughs> <laughs> we had to actually take like once the characters were rendered to a certain level of fidelity 
we realized that our backgrounds were too good. We had to we had to kind of dial them back a bit because it made the the CG characters look that much more artificial. Um, we made them too good. It uh-huh. was e- it's easy to do hard surface and even in some of the environment stuff that we did. Um, we had to kind of pull it back a little that bit. That makes but, a lot of sense, yeah. But the watch was was huge fun. Um, and because, like, Aki's watch is like this big metal shackle, they actually had, I, I haven't really seen this in, in other products, but maybe it exists. Um, the idea was that, because you couldn't really take a link out of the watch, it's almost like a literal shackle. So it would go over your wrist, and if, it, if your wrist was too small, it had a bladder around the inside of the watch that you could inflate. And that would be the thing that would hold it tight to your wrist. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, kind of cool. That is like cool. a Nike, like a Nike pump kind of thing. You know, you 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 pump it up to a comfortable um, firmness, and that's that's how you held it. I don't know what you do if it's if your arm is bigger than the watch. I guess you know. I don't think they have a solution for that. Yeah, you're but... out of luck. Take it to <laughs> a jeweler and have them cut it or something. But yeah, I love. I you know again having like an industrial design background and being able to work on. On that, with the Seiko team, was a that was a pleasure. Uh, now, do you own one of these watches? Yeah. Nice. Cause I do. I'm on eBay, and <laughs> Ooh, what can I what can I get for it? You could well if you have the original box. There's a, a person here selling it for six hundred and fifty five dollars. Oh, that's it. That's it. So uh, there's a couple. Let me see what's on the higher end. Seiko Final Fantasy: The Spirits Within. Uh, box papers unworn, fourteen hundred dollars. There you go. There you go. Now we're talking. Now, now we're, we're talking. talking. <laughs> so that's awesome that you have one. You still have the original box and stuff. I still have the the spoon watch that was the inspiration for the idea. Wow. Like the one, yeah. The, it'd be. I think if you saw them side by side, you'd see the uh, the similarities. Oh, I'm sure. You... Not not that it's. I mean, the design is very different, but there's an inspiration for sure. Wow. I mean, so you ever rock that? You ever walk around, like, go to parties oh, yeah. and be, yeah? Oh. Well, I don't wear the Final Fantasy one that often. So what happens over time, um, unfortunately, there's a flaw. Uh-oh. Watch, watch, watch out how you spend your $1,400, kid. <laughs> um, the the light-up feature becomes disconnected over time. And mine, even though I don't wear it that much, does it no longer, when you press the button to light up the backlight, um, it does not work Ah, uh, I see. Well, but that's okay. It's still a piece you know, of history. I, I I also have a a Hamilton wristwatch that was modeled after the Discovery crew in 2001 Space Odyssey oh. that you can seldom see in the movie, but they are wearing it. The Hamilton Watch Company made the design for 2001, wow. and then in the year 2001 they released one, and they made 2001 of them. Uh, how appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> The, I like watches. I could talk about watches all day. Oh, we'll have to do a watches episode. Sure. <laughs> That's great. Well, man, James, this was an enjoyable discussion. Thanks so much for just sharing your memories and your experiences working on this movie, all these great products. I appreciate it. Well, thanks. It was fun. Yeah. So if you don't mind, just um, where could our listeners find you? You know, our, our company's website at First Contact Entertainment for the amazing games we've been making there. Um, for me, I'm on Twitter at at jhdargy or my website claviaspace.com it's clear 2001 reference there which i'm sure you know yes i saw the clavius we are here on clavius so they're talking to the, you know, <laughs> the foreigners and i was like i'll say this as a closing little piece of trivia there was somebody in hollywood i don't know if i should name names 
somebody reached out to me. I've had this website since the 90s, and since like 97, I think I bought it. And I've had several offers from people to buy it. Somebody had a production company named Space, and I wouldn't sell it to him even back then. I didn't know who it was at the time, but even if I had known, I wouldn't have sold it. Oh my goodness. When did Kubrick pass away? Uh, it wasn't Kubrick. Oh, if it was okay. him, I, I, I probably would have. Yeah, you're like, take it, take it, Kubrick. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have held that um, away from him. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Stanley. It was uh, somebody who's a big fan and who named their production company Space huh. Productions. I think they worked on a little something called From the Earth to the Moon for HBO, hmm. and then then later had to change their name to Playtone Playtone Records. I see. But these are all these are all very easy dots to connect if one were so inclined. Wow. Well, you left us with like a treasure map here. That's wonderful. Uh, well, thanks again for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. You have a good right, night. Moses. Thanks. You as well. Wow. That was quite the adventure, huh? And I hope this helps a lot of folks consider uh, everything that just goes into game development and film development, the artistry behind those things. So that gives us plenty to chew on. But while this episode may be over, the legend will live on, passed down by the dwarves, the elves, and the dragons.